The spoil system gets its name from the New York Senator William Marcy, who says to the victor, go the spoils or something to that effect. What he means is that when parties win election, then they get to make all of these appointments. Welcome to episode three of Beyond Burning Gotham. My name is James Scully. These episodes are the history compendium for the preceding Burning Gotham chapters. They'll help paint the picture on what was really going on in 1835. Our characters live in a New York that's rapidly becoming the most important city in the Western world. In this episode, we'll focus on the spoils system, John Jacob Astor, and development up Manhattan Island. Burning Gotham Chapter 5 is called Irving and Astor. Most of the functions in the 19th century that were government functions were state and local functions. The city is growing rapidly in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s, which means that there are more streets that need to be paved, there are parks that are going to be built, there are police who are going to do public safety function and they're going to be on a local neighborhood beat. There's a health department that becomes more robust in this period, and all of the opportunities for political appointments really grow. Immense fortunes have been made within the last three months. You saw the profits on the Baird estate. $225,000. Two years ago, that land sold for less than 60000 I fear the balloon will burst, and when it does, woe to those who fall with it. Well, Philip, woe to the many, then, instead of the few. Let's hope so. Oh, these Tammany men are more interested in giving every immigrant the right to vote than securing the city's best interests. This is Jeff Broxmeyer. He's a Tammany Hall historian whose first novel, Electoral Capitalism, the party system in New York's Gilded Age, outlines the spoils system during the Jacksonian Democrat era. The spoils system was one of the most important experiments in the new modes of mass democracy that took root in the 19th century. You have to understand that politics was really an elite game everywhere around the world and in the United States in the early Republic. But mass parties emerge that are representing this expanded electorate. It's expensive to organize collective action at a mass level. The way in which the mass parties in the United States are financed are by plundering the resources of the public through elected and appointed positions at various government levels at the federal, state, and local level, and then recirculating those resources through party organizations. It's not really Jackson himself, although he's the kind of front man for that. There's a circle of Jacksonian Democrats who create this spoil system at the national level. And that's why the Democratic Party emerges as the first mass political party starting in the 1830s. As we discussed in the previous Beyond Burning Gotham episodes, in 1835, Tammany Hall Democrats were in power. They appointed fellow members of the party to locally lucrative positions, thus ensuring a self-sustaining political machine. Those appointees take a cut from their salary or whatever fees and other kinds of resources they can accumulate from their office, and they cycle a portion of that back to the party as the cost of financing the next election canvas. 
sometimes there were what were referred to as assessments on salaries that was usually like maybe 1% or 2% or if the political leaders are being particularly greedy, more than that. You basically build a campaign war chest from a portion of the salaries of appointed political figures. But then there are also other really lucrative aspects of the spoil system, like contracts that could be given out or favors that could be done. At the federal level, the main sources of the spoil system were the custom houses. The New York custom house was the main one. That's why Samuel Swartwood is such an infamous figure, because he really leveraged that to make himself really, really wealthy. But also, let's be clear, he was doing that for party politics as well, embezzling up to, or I think, over a million dollars. But the post office, your letter carrier, was a party hack in the era of the spoil system. In a society where the federal government was soon to be no longer backing local paper currency, the economic bubble was sure to burst. It's what had Philip Holmes so worried that spring. I asked Jeff how the original Tammany society became so Democrat and so politically focused. The conversation quickly turned to the differences between the society, the physical space, and the political party. There's the Tammany society, which has all sorts of political views represented in it. Not just Jeffersonians, not just the Burr people. There are Federalists, there are Whigs, there are Nativists, there are Know-Nothings. And so this is the Fraternal Order. It's the Council of Sachems with the Grand Sachem. It's very, very middle class, but it is vaguely dedicated to the, quote, true and genuine principles of republicanism. And it's growing in this period of the early republic where there are all sorts of fraternal orders that are growing up. So there's the Tammany Society, that's one thing that's distinct. And then there's Tammany Hall, the building. A lot of people meet in Tammany Hall because they let the space out. Generally in the 18th and early 19th centuries, there's this distinction between the people out of doors and the people indoors in politics. And the people out of doors are the mob and the crowd and the people who are protesting. Oftentimes they can't vote because of the property and taxpayer qualifications. But they still have views and they still get angry and they'll still have their people that they burn in effigy on the streets and stuff like that. But assemblies that meet in buildings are oftentimes among people who are enfranchised. They tend to be more elite. And they're the ones who have the time to engage in politics and deliberation and to choose delegates, pass resolutions, and all of this kind of stuff. The conventions that become really quite central to the age of Jackson. So all that's happening in Tammany Hall, that's the people indoors. And so there's the Tammany Society, there's Tammany Hall, the building and the place. But the long room is the place where the people are meeting, who are in the third thing, which is the general committee of the Democratic-Republican Party and later the Democratic Party. This is an organization that's expressly a political organization that's making nominations for tickets that are going to be voted on. This is where you see that the organization has a structure that has a ward basis it has representatives from each of the parts of the city who are going to try and jostle for influence on who gets nominated for a ticket and things like this. The confusion is that these things basically all collapse into one, but later, in a later period. 
So who would be wealthy enough to become immune to these party politics? Well, one man comes to mind. For the answers on the richest man in America, I turn to Daniel Levy. Believe me, your point is taken to heart, Washington, but I hesitate to sell. However, I would love to visit. Is John at Hellgate now? No. He wants to supervise his hotel construction. He's taken over St. Paul's for the day. John Jacob Astor made a fortune not only in the fur trade, but also the China trade. Gathered furs, which were shipped off to England and shipped off to China. From China, he'd bring back goods like silks and porcelain and teas. He had tried to set up a outpost on the West Coast. It was a complete failure. And I think he realized that he has this far-flung and not very stable trade empire. You know, ships go down, get blown up, fashions change, and real estate, which he'd gotten into not long after he arrives in New York, was a lot more stable. And he realized that this was really where the money was. Wish him the best and invite him to Hellgate should he come to New York. Sign it to your old friend and obedient servant, John Jacob Astor. John Jacob Astor was born in Germany in 1763. He arrived in Baltimore in March of 1784, eventually getting into both the fur trade while selling musical instruments for his uncle. In 1799, he began buying land in New York City, acquiring sizable holdings along the waterfront. Four years later, he bought a 70-acre farm on which he built the Astor Mansion at Hellgate. The property ran west of Broadway to the Hudson River between 42nd and 46th Streets. Astor continued to diversify and increase his holdings throughout the early part of the 19th century. By the spring of 1835, now 71 years old, Astor removed himself from the fur trade and turned his attention not only to real estate, but also building a new hotel by City Hall. He had seen the Tremont Hotel in Boston, which was done by the great architect Isaiah Rogers. He wanted to do something like that in New York. New York had hotels, but they were really limited. I think the largest at this point was the City Hotel, which maybe had 130 rooms or so. And they weren't, most of them were quite simple. People would stay in inns and what have you. Coffee houses rented out space upstairs. He decided he wanted to build something grand and luxurious started in 1834, it opened in 1836. This is Crossman City Hall Park, near where the Woolworth Building is now. And he would oftentimes realize that the city is really moving and developing. He really was quite prescient in seeing how things were moving uptown. So he oftentimes buy plots uptown, which were in undeveloped areas, and wait till really development got up there and then sell them off for a lot more money. Astor was doing this amidst shipping delays and New York's chaotic growth up Manhattan Island. He's able to take on the financial risk of importing two Russian countesses, and shrewd enough to see the value in setting up Aaron Columbus in business. Just ask Greg Young. Greg's been co-host of the Bowery Boys podcast since 2007. He's a landlord and a fur trader. He's not the, like, scion of the Gilded Age, right? The family name doesn't mean the same thing. <laughs> Part of the reason the Astor name got grandfathered into the old family, essentially. There is this thing that happens in the 30s, 
20s, 30s, 40s in this era, what's the creation of New York class. Before that, everyone has connections to England. A couple generations later, the old wealthy are building up their version of sort of like upscale neighborhoods. And this would be anywhere from around Jones Street, that area, like the Astor Place area is obviously pretty key to that, but even up at like Gramercy Park and then over by Washington Square Park. But compare that to the mansions that happened like 25 years later. Those all look sort of modest. People are trying to build larger than the prior generation. And then on top of the physical building, it's also building their legend and building upon that reputation. And all of that is being fueled by all the money that's sort of cascading through the city. Again, not just the money that the city has, but all of these particular families and all their ties to oil and railroads and all of that kind of stuff. In the 30s, to me, that's the decade where the class structure begins to solidify. It's still a very small population of people. You probably are talking like 12, 13 families. Everyone's a lot more intermarried back then, which is another reason why we can just fairly say families. They very rarely let people in on the sides. In doing that, they're developing what their sense of what being an American is. And that is tied up to class. Well, clearly you need a larger budget than you currently have access to. I have an errand for you. You'll be paid at the end. An errand? Is that a problem? No, sir. M merely curious. I want you to go to the Bank of Manhattan Company. I take it you know the location well. 40 Wall Street. A Mr. John Loomis will be there. Give him this note. I expect you at Hellgate this evening with the Countess after 9 o'clock. Is that clear? Yeah. I don't want to use my father's last name, so you send me to the bank of the Manhattan Company. We Germans are ironic people. It's six o'clock, Mr. Columbus. The streets are crowded. Better get to it. Yes, sir. Well, where do we go from here? Out in the street with Glenn Umberger. Look at this. Four blocks from Squalor and there are rows of hundred-dollar-an-hour Livingston brothels. Only in New York. I think one of the ways that they're, they're dealing with it, and, you know, they're not planners as we would think of planning today. Glenn's an architectural historian and former special projects manager for the New York Landmarks Conservancy. I work in a town where I work with the planning department. So we have planners on staff. They think about, well, how's the town going to grow and where's going to be the new streets and how are we going to get this new development shoehorned in here and those types of issues. 1830s, New York is not thinking about stuff like that. They're just trying to think of, we have to keep pace with the population and how are we going to do that? Another thing to consider is the 1830s is really the decade where Brooklyn is essentially born. Like, Brooklyn is a farm town before that decade. It's like various reasons. You can't really come up with one, but if you wanted to come up with two reasons, it's because of the Erie Canal and the development of the steamship, steam transportation. All of that flooded these places with money. And it's true that sometimes the cities did not have that money to develop. You know, you still had deep-seated 
political hagglings back then. I mean, that just never goes away. It just sort of changes shape. But the individuals, the private homeowners and landowners, they have all of this money during this period. That's what's sort of leading the charge. Then there's also the city versus state aspect, which is really interesting in this region as well, because that also turns a lot of these sparsely populated farmlands into, you know, villages and towns and cities. At one point, Williamsburg was a city and Brooklyn was a city and New York was a city and everything else was kind of farmland. So all of that's happening in just like these 20, 30 years. And as a result, everything is getting really developed in this short period of time, not necessarily by the city and not. And even when the city does it, not very well, it would turn out. So when it comes to things like fire, for instance, the quote, city or state aren't really very reliable in this period. So what steps were city developers taking in the 1830s? In lower Manhattan, one of the ways that they're doing that is if you look at a place like around Bowling Green, Bowling Green, nearby Greenwich Street, early 1800s, that was probably the most fashionable residential neighborhood in the city. As the population starts moving northward, those houses are left behind and they become what we say in preservation world, adaptively reused. Commercial property, some of those houses are broken into multiple smaller dwelling units. The building's still there, they still look the same, though more people are occupying those buildings than you know the family that had been there before. And then those buildings are actually torn down and a bigger building goes on that lot. Another way that they're doing it is the population centers are moving farther north on the island, leaving the southern areas to be reallocated for commercial use. While there's not zoning per se at that point, there is a demarcation between lower Manhattan as commercial and then farther up on the island as more residential. And that trend actually continues all the way up into the 20th century. Follow the population centers up Fifth Avenue, for example. That's exactly what they're doing. In Burning Gotham, chapters five and six, Aaron Columbus finds himself riding all over town. With so much population turnover, I asked Glenn what kind of architectural styles Aaron would have been seeing traveling around Manhattan in 1835. Generally speaking, pre-19th century New York, you have a variety of styles. In some cases, what I refer to as the vernacular style or a local style done with local materials, no architects involved, Dutch farmhouses. There's some great examples in Staten Island, some great examples in Northern Manhattan. You get into the 19th century and then you start seeing some more formal architectural styles. So about the time of the American Revolution, you have a style of architecture that comes into fashion in the colonies, the Georgian style, thanks to George III. Red brick, smaller windows, shutters, plain front doors. In some cases, it looks like they were just taken out of London and plopped in the United States. After the Revolutionary War, you start getting into a period called the Federal Period. Still red brick, three, four stories tall. Doors become a little bit more delicate, shall we say. Fan lights, side lights. You see these in the West Village. And that lasts until really just after the War of 1812. We kind of want to get away from looking like England at that point. We kind of want to do our own thing. And it's an interesting story because Greece is fighting their own war of independence at the time. There's the rediscovery of ancient Greece. 
old democracy. We kind of like that idea. So around that time is when the Greek revival starts to take its hold in the United States. And it becomes probably the most fashionable style of architecture that you can have. And it's everywhere in what was then the United States in the 1830s. And it's really basically borrowing architectural forms from ancient Greece. Columns, porticoed window frames, symmetry. You walk around town, you see, you know, a church from the 1830s. It looks like a little Greek temple. That was the height of architectural fashion at the time. To a lesser extent, the buildings along Stone Street, 1836, are in a Greek revival style that's been modified to fit the look of a more modest commercial structure, but still wanting to be fashionable, to be what we would call modern. Well, Aaron arrived at his destination at the rectory on Clement Clark Moore's property, our journey still has two more chapters in this initial installment of Burning Gotham. Whom did you support in the bank war? Senor Beadle or Presidente Jackson? I supported free commerce. Ah. Well, there is no commerce here. Only God. Do you know El Capitan Jones on Dover Street? Uh, yeah, by face, I think. Well... Jones has in his possession authentic engraver plates for El Segundo Banco Nacional. Thank you, brother. Bien. Ride fast. Senor Astor hates to be kept waiting. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 3 of Beyond Burning Gotham. New Burning Gotham chapters come out on Sundays and Tuesdays, and these history episodes drop on Fridays. Chapter 7 will be available beginning Sunday, December 18th, 2022. It's called Welcome to Hellgate. Special thank you to Daniel Levy, Greg Young, Glenn Umberger, and Jeff Broxmeyer. They provided detailed insights on John Jacob Astor, the spoil system, and New York in 1835. If you've been enjoying Burning Gotham and beyond Burning Gotham, please give us a review and tell a friend. To support the show for as little as two bucks per month, please go to patreon.com slash burninggotham. It's the best holiday gift you can give. My name is James Scully. This has been Episode 3 of Beyond Burning Gotham, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>